Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! When the leaves of summer turn red and gold And the football games bring a hint of cold Time to get away We'll pack the car with escape in mind Forget about classes, leave the books behind Time to get away Cause when you fall into my arms I'll break into your heart Take it, Billy Joel <laughs> We're going on a fall, fall break. break. Woo! Fall break. Oh. God damn! I mean, what a, what a catchy little tune. Who would have thought that this film would have brought that number out of fucking nowhere? I mean, listen, unexpected. When I go into a movie entitled "The Mutilator," and the last thing I fucking expect is that catchy number to be thrown in my eardrums but that's what i got and i guess that's because the original title of this film was fall break so transitioning to the title the mutilator does make for a very strange contrast with that song you know catchy a song from a slasher next to that party the whole night long from um evil laugh yeah remember that but you don't have the characters in this one shaking their asses or anything the characters in this one are pretty pretty Bland. Pretty bland. They all, they all look the same. <laughs> yes. I don't see any of them shaking their ass to anything. No, no, no. That song is honestly the most exciting thing about this film overall. The characters, I don't know. It's, it's a mixed bag with this one. You get some pretty wooden acting from a majority of them. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I do like uh, Pam. I mean, I don't like her pink jacket. I'll say that. They try, they, they try to shove the whole, like, virginal... Final girl thing down our throats throughout oh, this film, which I God. thought was a very odd choice. But right away, the minute it's you, that it's mentioned she's a virgin, you're like, okay, there's our final girl right there. But she, you know, what we'll save it for later. But you know, she does kick it into gear later on in the film for like the last five minutes. She does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, up to that point, she's pretty useless. Well, she's probably the best actress in the bunch. Let's be honest; the other two broads look like you put a wig on a mop and just told it to walk or i mean they're so st- they're oh so stoic God. in one note but none I of them know. are as wooden as fucking mike i mean uh, everyone here in this in this in this movie is is kind of awkward to watch but that fucker i mean he is like watching paint dry he is so bland his delivery of dialogue it's just it's comedically bad then when his death scene comes which we'll be touching on that in a moment all of his charisma and all of his everything gets put into that one moment that death scene is so fucking over the top i can't wait to talk about some of these moments because this movie it's just like i said it's such a mixed bag you got the bad you got the good and then in the middle you've got just a lot of beach footage (laughs) and this condo and that's it that's literally all you have but god i mean we're talking about the mutilator troy good choice on this one especially with that recent release of the mutilator 2 trailer which leaves a lot to be desired 
You know, I haven't been disappointed in a movie trailer in quite some time. And that one, I have to say, I'm sorry, you know, Buddy Cooper and, and everyone involved, because we, I know some some people that are involved, you know, Damien Maffei's in it. He's uh, he's pretty up and coming in indie horror scene. He was in Strangers Pray at Night and the uh, what's the uh, horror themed? Oh, it's Haunt. He's in Haunt. He's in a lot of stuff and he he has a role in The Mutilator. Terry Kaiser from Weekend at Bernie's and Friday the 13th Part 6 is in it. And so I was like really excited because there's been talks of the sequel for years and years and years and years. Like Buddy Cooper has been wanting to make this sequel from thinking like 30 years. I listened to an interview with him on a podcast several years back and he was talking about how it, just, it would just never fall into place. He was, he was always down to do a sequel. So when I heard it was announced and everything, I was like, fuck yes, finally, because I will admit the Mutilator is one of my favorite 80s slasher flicks. I, I get why, too. I get why. I know. I mean, I, I know, guys, don't. I know it's not like a great film. And, you know, we're going to discuss all of the things that could have been improved with it. But it's I, I, I watched the movie and I just have so much fun with it. There's such a nostalgic feel. So long story short, I was super excited. And when I saw the Mutilator 2 trailer, I'm like, no. no. Well, they're going for that whole meta thing, yeah. Troy. They're doing that meta thing. And you know what? Honestly, like... Uh, been there done that this is not a film that i wanted to see that like and maybe if they were getting more of the original talent back but the only original actors that are coming back are uh, ralph and pam uh-huh. and they're playing themselves, themselves and that's yeah. all they have so it's like when you only have two of the original actors like it's like what's the what purpose is it serving you know like why um i know it's back to the original location that's cool but overall the trailer they said that they purposely opted to show none of the kills in the trailer because they wanted to leave it as a completely surprise factor, like, which in concept is is admirable, I guess, but, like, it really made for a very lackluster experience. Like, I have not seen a, a more uh, lackluster trailer in general in, in, in a very long time. I was shocked by how boring it was. So I really hope there's something that they're hiding from us that they're going to bust out when the movie actually, you know, is screened that is a pleasant surprise because right now I am not anticipating a great experience. I feel like it's going to be a massive letdown. The movie did not, or the trailer did not make me want to see the film. I will see the film because I'm such a fan of the first one, but yeah, the whole meta thing, you know, the whole premise of the film is like, they're doing a screening of the original film in the location. It was filmed over a weekend and they invite some of the cast back. So you do get um, Bill Hitchcock and uh, the other, the, the girl who played Pam, they come back and I guess the premise is someone starts killing off the people that are there for the screening that weekend, which it, I guess is an interesting concept, but it's it's so the antithesis of what I would expect from a sequel to The Mutilator. Oh my God. And not only that, but like, I could, okay, maybe if this was something like, like New Nightmare that worked because there was so much um, like nostalgia factor behind the film at that point already. It had history. It developed a fan base. You know, it, a period of time had passed that had really developed the characters within that franchise. So when you saw it come back um, with, you know, Heather Langenkamp playing herself and so forth, like there was a massive fan base wanting to see that. With this, all you have is the original film. It's, you know, based around a storyline that focuses, I mean, let's get into it. It focuses around a father who has a huge vengeance issue towards his son for something he did as a child, which to a certain extent, like the anger makes sense, but he's taken it way too far. Um, and, you know, and he's just enacting his his vengeance on, on his son and the kids that come with him. And 
while it makes for a very, I guess, interesting concept because it's pretty different from a lot of the other slashers that we've seen, you know who the killer is right away. He's never masked. You see his face clear as day. Um, To approach it from this meta angle, I just, I, I think like there's not enough to build off of to make the meta aspect feel fulfilling. Like you don't have this huge kind of connection with these characters like you do a Nancy Thompson or Heather Langenkamp. You don't have this huge relationship with the actors that played these characters because you only have this one movie to go off of. So I just don't think that it's fulfilling. I don't think that this is a cool concept for this specific movie. It might work for other films, but it's been kind of overdone at this point. So I just don't understand why that was the route that they chose to take with this. Well, you know what? I'm going to give it a fair chance. I I am going to believe them when they say that they held back for the trailer and and do not want to spoil any of the kills or the gore effects or any of the suspense fine i'll believe you i know that you know joe castro did the effects for mutilator 2 and he is a very great special effects artist he's done uh, terror tunes i mean his his work has been in a lot of stuff he he commented on a post i saw him comment on a post about the mutilator 2 and said that he strongly feels it's some of his best work the effects in mutilator 2 so that has me excited because he does some damn good work so hopefully they are going we're going to watch and like oh fuck this is amazing the trailer was such a you know misdirection but yes the mutilator folks 1984 is the mutilator probably one of the most eye-catching box arts that to come out of the 80s probably one of the more i would say violent box arts to come out of the 80s my mom would avoided renting this for me to watch for years because of the box art you know the box art has the people hung on the hooks and you know the it's it's very it's done very like cartoonish painting wise but it's really really eye-catching and like i said really violent and you get that amazing tagline by sword by pick by axe bye bye come on you know, and and when my mom rented it and we watched it the first time, I got to tell you, I remember watching it and I was like, this is dumb. This is stupid. I mean, you can't see anything. There's no gore. You don't know what's going on. It's because, you know, there were two versions were released. There was like the unrated version that showed the gore and then there was the R-rated version. And I think the R-rated version is the one that made it into kind of your mainstream video stores like Hollywood Video and Blockbuster. If you rented that one, none of the gore was intact. None of it. It was all cut. Oh my god. I can't imagine this movie without gore cuz it's one of the the saving graces of the film. Like let's be real. <laughs> it is. I mean if you if you ask anybody, you know, first thing that comes to mind when they when you when you say the mutilator, ask any 80 slasher fan, they're going to say the gore for sure. Um, you know, and then the storyline, I mean it, it starts very I want to say it starts very boldly, very aggressively with this opening scene and I mean aggressive in terms of like you know, assaulting the audience with something we're not really expecting, which is matricide. You know, it's not on purpose, but it's still pretty shocking. Although, you know, you, you know, you know, you open on this little cottage and you, you know, you go into the house and there's this lovely mother wearing a sensible scarf and white blouse. She looks very lovely. She's making a cake. Cut me off a piece of that fucking cake. Oh, she's oh so proud God, of it. She's delicious. so her, her rosy, puffy cheeks. I love this mother. Luscious. She doesn't say a word. She doesn't say a word, but I love her. Okay. And so then you get the kid who ends up being little Ed, who for some reason thinks that it's a great idea to clean his father's guns for his birthday. 
Oh, he even reads a, a note about it. He puts a big note about it. Happy birthday. All clean by me. Now, the kid, you know, the mother's in the kitchen making her little cake. The kid's in the other room. He pick, he picks up one of the shotguns. There's a plethora of shotguns to choose from in this gun cabinet. He picks up one, starts wiping it down, very impressed, and then proceeds to just point the gun towards the kitchen and pull the trigger. We're not even two minutes into the movie by this point. No, not even two. <gasps> Lo and behold, the gun is loaded. It blows the shit out of his mom's chest. And in, in a couple slow motions, you get different angles of her body jerking and falling on the floor. You get like four angles of it. But I do want to say, you see the her back blow the fuck up. Like her back <laughs> erupts, but the front of her body is completely intact. If this gun has this force <laughs> of a blast... That woman would be completely hollowed out. I mean, her chest would be an empty cavity at this point. But somehow, the bullet just explodes the back. The front of the body is fine. Well, yeah. And then when she falls, there's very, there's very little pools of blood either when the dad finally comes home. The kid realizes what he did. He, he runs into the room and gets down to his mother and you in a very awkwardly dubbed... <laughs> mama! Mama! <laughs> it's like, mama! 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 mama. <laughs> Oh my god, this voice, like, it is so, like, it's like a disembodied voice. It's not coming from this child, I'll tell you that much. It's so flat, it literally is. Mama, mama, there's no emotion to it whatsoever. This kid's keeping his cool for having just slaughtered his mother in the kitchen. So, <laughs> it's a great start, we're off to a good start. Well, and then, so then the dad comes home, pulls up, comes home from a, a hard day of duck hunting, it looks like. Because he walks in the door, and he's holding some ducks, and he sees his, his poor wife sprawled out on the kitchen floor and he he runs over to her and the kid is sitting there and he immediately just shoves the kid out of the way uh and then slaps him slaps yeah he takes him in the room and slaps him like i get it well i get it too but my problem is this like okay gun control gun safety has been a huge like topic in america now for probably the last two decades right this was the mid 80s it probably wasn't as a hot topic but do do you not think roger that this dad has some of the blame for his wife being blown away oh he's absolutely responsible why do you have loaded shotguns in your house that your son can easily grab and yeah pull the trigger and shoot the shit like you're asking too many questions troy i'm saying it right now why aren't they locked up well, and the dad like proceeds to like slap the kid and then get the gun and like he's going to blow this kid away. But the kid runs out of the house and you get a hint of like this dad. And I'm sorry, you, you mentioned it. He, the dad, the dad's reaction is pretty tame too. like he never like cries or like makes any sort of grimace. It's just like, oh, and he, he pulls her into the other room like she's a sack of potatoes. No no emotion. <laughs> he sits sits her, uh, leans her against the couch, takes some whiskey, which I get, take that bourbon, takes a shot of it, and then sees the sign that says all clean by me, happy birthday. And he, for some reason, takes it off of the gun cabinet and sticks it on his wife's chest. I don't understand. <laughs> Her chest that does not have any blood on it. Let's yes. make that clear. You know, the bullet supposedly went through her, but her chest is perfectly fine. Sticks it on her and then proceeds to pour her a, a sip of whiskey and see if she wants some. I'm like, dude. Okay. So here's my thing right off the bat. Let's talk about, let's talk about the father because what I'm supposed to gather from this moment is what just happened drove the dad crazy. I get it. As it quickly, quickly. like I mean, with little to no emotional breakdown. Like he he walks in, he sees the kid, he's pissed, 
he's he's mad. He's not like emotionally overloaded as I would be if I walked in and I found my husband or wife dead on the floor, you know, bullet hole through the back. I would fall apart. I'd be weeping. And then if I was going to, you know, I don't know, drag their body into the other room and feed it alcohol, I would at least do do so in the midst of like a mental breakdown. This man is very calm in the midst of his execution of all of this. He drags the body casually to the next room. And then it feels like he's just hanging out with her. He puts the, the side on her chest and then he starts feeding her the, feeding her the alcohol. And it feels very much like they're trying to send the message that the dad lost his mind. But like, to me, I feel like the dad is already cuckoo bananas before any of this happened. And this is just a progression of it because this whole thing does not make sense. I really don't understand what they're trying to say here. I think I get like their goal, but I wouldn't say that they achieve it. It's very awkward. I totally get what they were going for. Yes, they were supposed we were supposed to be seeing, oh man, this guy is going nuts. He's trying to feed his dead wife alcohol and have a drink with her. Okay. But it's so quick. And you are right. There is the father is cuckoo bananas before this even happened because there's a couple things that are mentioned here later on in the film that make you realize this dad has some serious issues. Serious issues. Uh things that are just revealed that you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. But I mean, quick opening. This opening scene, Roger, is probably less than two minutes long. This film would have done done huge favor from giving us maybe three more minutes of setup and just explaining a little more background within this household. Because the mom seems relatively normal and extremely pleasant. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any animosity or tension between anybody within the household. And if the dad is mentally struggling with something or, you know, coping with some issues, it's it's not really made clear as to why or if it was something that existed prior to this incident. And they can try to, you know, hint at it later on in the dialogue, but because the setup is so kind of convoluted and lacking exposition, it really just makes it feel disjointed. Like this, this whole intro really doesn't feel like it's giving me enough to go off of to be an, a proper setup for a motivation for this man to inevitably do what he does. You know what I mean? To be honest with you, I don't think a lot of thought went into this screenplay. Let's find a way to get this guy to want to kill people. <laughs> like that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Buddy Cooper obviously was a fan of slasher films. And I love when it's obvious that a filmmaker is a fan of the genre that they are dipping their toes into, particularly slasher film fans, because you generally get the film to have a little bit more passion, grit behind it. And I think that's the case here. I think he realized in the mid 80s when the, with the slasher boom explosion that this was going to be the perfect time for him, him to be able to pool his resources together and do this film because if you know anything about this film, you read anything about it, it was a very small, you know, crew behind it. Shot on location with just a handful of crew. He wrote it, he produced it, he did everything for it, you know, small cast. And I so I don't think like a setup, like I don't think they gave a lot of thought into story. And instead they just needed a way to get this guy to want to kill people and to get these kids to this isolated location. And I get it. It's fine. It's a slasher film. I don't need a tons of background story, but it just is a very awkward. And I think it's a great word to use a very awkward opening to the film. I do. I will say the film definitely progresses for the better as it goes on past this opening scene. And, you know, 
right after the opening scene, it wastes no time cutting to the adult Ed. Now he's an adult or a college student sitting in a bar with his lovely girlfriend, Pam, and their three friends. You got Ralph, who, let's be honest, Ralph, of all the characters, has the most personality. Oh, definitely. And he's got that little twang of his accent. I like that, too. Yeah, he does have that twang. I could see why people might find him annoying. But upon a couple, you know, more viewings of this film, I actually find his character to be quite endearing. And I think it's because the other characters are so fucking bland. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely think that this film suffers from vanilla character syndrome, which is it's a bunch of white people. All of them kind of look pretty similar, at least the girls. Two of the girls are literally wearing not only the same ensemble, but the the same hairstyle. Problematic. They blur together. They become one for me at certain points. I can't tell them apart. Um, But yeah, like the characters here are just pretty paper thin. At least they're put in a lot of situations where they're having fun together. They're having a good time. So they're still likable, but they're boring. These are boring people. I will say that Ed Jr., kind of hot. I'm not going to lie about it. I do find him attractive. I like that fuzzy chest. Um, I also like the fact that instantly, without hesitation, they're so quick to introduce the song Fall Break, the only song in this fucking film. Like this, literally this song (laughs) and then a romantic flute piece that you hear later on. And that's all you get. And a couple of like dark ominous tones. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, when you say they're boring, they are they are boring because it's fall break, as we learn. And Ed's big complaint is they, again, for the second year in a row, have not planned on anything for fall break. I'm like, well, dude, whose fault is that? Yeah. And they're like, what are we going to do? And and Linda's like, well, I'm going to set a new high score on the video machine. And Linda, how many fucking times are you going to blink your eyes during a single shot? This girl blinks her eyes like 40 times during one piece of dialogue. It's crazy. Bless the bless her and Mike's heart because they are the, the <laughs> these two can't act their way out of a goddamn bag. But you know whatever. Thank God they're the first to go. Uh, but yeah, they're just sitting around this bar bitching about they didn't plan anything for spring break. And I love this scene because the few scenes that you get background people like extras in the background, you got to pay attention. <laughs> Because literally 90% of the time they are just staring right into the camera. Like there's this dude sitting in the, I don't know if you noticed him, he's sitting in the corner of the bar, this like older heavy set dude with glasses. And the, oh, I saw and the whole time he's just staring into the camera. I'm like, did the director not be like, dude, no, no, act like you're drinking or something. Turn away, quit staring at us. Because he's literally staring the whole time. But I want to know how fucking much time does Ed spend in this bar? Because he gets a phone call. <laughs> How the fuck does his dad know to call him at this goddamn bar? That's my my note with stars next to it. It says, okay, I'll buy the setup for this movie. As, as nonsense as it all is, I'll, I'll take it. The opening scene, it's a lot of bullshit, but I'll go with it. You know what I won't accept? That his father knew exactly which bar to call him at to inform him that he needs his condo locked up. That I don't buy. That father is not going to know 
which bar to call? It's 1980-something. They don't even have the internet. There's no way he's going to find that fucking bar's phone number, let alone know the bar in general. It makes no sense to me. It really is such a plot device to keep the story moving. It feels very forced. I feel like they got this bar location for free. You know, this bar must be owned by Buddy Cooper's pal. And he's like, hey, dude, you can shoot a scene here. And of course, to make the film maybe look a little bit more bigger budget, they're like, yeah, 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 let's, let's film something here. But yeah, it makes no sense. I was like, how does this person know to call the bar? How would he know that Ed is at this bar at this particular time? Whatever. Ed gets on the phone with his dad and Linda's comment is, oh, I thought Ed's dad died. And Pam has to inform them. Very, I don't think this is her place to tell them this, but she's doesn't she's like no it was his mom that died and he shot and killed her it was awful oh and she says it like full volume as ed is sitting literally like two feet beside her it's not like she's trying to be discreet she's like oh you guys don't know oh yeah he shot his mom and killed her and they're all like oh god and she's like yeah it was wild like she's she's not trying to be discreet about it at all these people have no consideration for the fact that this man killed his mother <laughs> Uh, so Ed comes back to the table and reveals that his father, who he doesn't have a relationship with, he's like this goddamn bastard, you know, for someone that you killed his wife, first of all, have a little bit more. I mean, he's like bad mouth and his dad and you have, you can't help but think, well, you did kill his wife. You know, I mean, that's probably has a reason to have some tension, but not to the point that he takes it in this film, but still, um, but he goes out and tells the group that, Hey, my dad wants me to go close down his condo for the winter, but I'm not going to do it because fuck him. He also brings up the fact that he's like, my dad's having another one of his spells, his drinking spells. And this begins like a series of, uh, bits of dialogue in which Ed Jr. And the rest of the group keep kind of like hinting at these issues that the dad has, um, that make it very clear to the audience that there's all these problems that the dad suffers from. You learn about the the heavy drinking later on in the house. You find about the dad having like all these like strange, like weapons and like hints of violence. And I think that like the filmmakers knew that the setup was not enough in and of itself for the dad to want to kill people. So they really like heavy handedly write into the dialogue, all of these things to make it clear that the dad is like really unstable and struggling with shit. So by the time he does start killing people, you're like, ah, I guess I saw it coming. I don't know how you can't see it coming. Like it's so heavy handed, so heavy handed. Ed doesn't want to go, but the group realizes, Hey, this is a free four-day vacation at the beach. So we're doing it. And Ed's like, oh, I don't know. I don't have a good feeling about this. But he agrees to do it. The scene cuts to Ralph coming out of like a lecture hall at the college. And they're waiting for him in the convertible. And, you know, Ralph bumps into some cheerleaders and says some something to them. And then he comes to inform the group that Sue, we have not met Sue yet. She can't go. And they're like, oh, but Ralph, you still have to come. And he's like, I don't know. I don't feel, I feel bad about leaving Sue. And then all of a sudden, Sue comes out of the building who looks very much like Linda. I mean, the two could be twins. Sue's like, hey, I'm ready to go for the weekend. And they're like, I thought you couldn't go. Oh, that Ralph. This, I don't, what, what the fuck was the point of this? Well, they always say that Ralph is like a joker. So I think that they really wanted to like make it clear to the audience, like Ralph's a joker. And this is an example of him like bullshitting and making like a joke and making, you know, like a false truth, telling a lie. So everyone knows what to expect from him. Cause that's like his one, one character arc throughout the whole course of the film. 
Ralph is the prankster. He's, you know, hanging up dummies from ropes and, and always like, you know, telling little lies and telling fibs for the sake of humor. And so I think that was their way of like initiating that. Um, it doesn't land as most of the humor in this film doesn't land. I have a bigger issue, a bigger gripe with the outfit that Pam is wearing. Um, that hat with those glasses and that pink fucking jacket. I think they realized exactly what you said here, Troy. I think they realized that Sue is a combination of Linda's physical appearance with Pam's ensemble because literally Pam and Sue are wearing the exact same outfit, sans the pink jacket, that bold pink jacket. So I think they gave Pam this really obnoxious pink jacket and this awful hat to try to make her pop, but it's just a horrible outfit. It's very 80s, yeah. If you've noticed, the characters are pretty much in the same clothes the entire film. Oh, there's only one outfit for each one of them. Yeah, yeah, there's only one outfit. The guys are in the same clothes the entire film. They leave the bar, and they are in the same clothes. But now Ralph and... Sue hop in the convertible and they're off to go. They are off to go. And you notice that they don't really have any luggage. I was wondering like, where are they putting the luggage in this tiny convertible that they're all packed into, but they don't need luggage because they're wearing the same clothes the whole goddamn day uh, or the whole goddamn time. So they go and then we get introduced to about a 15 minute opening credit sequence with fall break playing over it again. Infectious. We're going on a fall break, fall break. And it's a little montage of them just driving around. It reminded me a lot of like the montage you get at the beginning of Evil Laugh. Oh, very much so. I mentioned that earlier. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of parallels between Evil Laugh and this. I wonder if. Yeah, you know, one location. Yeah, yeah. And so there is this moment where we have to point out let's reverse, reverse back. When they try to start the car to leave the college campus, it won't start. So it's automatic. It's, very early on, it is hinted at that this car has problems, which will come into play later on in the film. So there is also this moment during the montage where they're at a gas station and the car is smoking. And Ralph takes the opportunity to go into this gas station to buy beer. And again, there's this woman, like when Ralph goes to the counter or to the cooler to get the beer, she's just standing there in the corner staring at the camera. <laughs> And then when he walks away, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to do something. So she kind of moves. But he goes up to the counter and there is this like sign that says senior discount 10%. And Ralph asks the store clerk, how old you got to be for that? And the store clerk says 65. And Ralph proceeds to tell him that is discrimination. Okay. <laughs> Let's pause real quick. I know. I know. I know. I know, girl. I know. I know. <laughs> Let's just acknowledge that this couple, they are, are people of color. And... Uh, Ralph is not, Ralph is very much a, a young white man. And he, the way he says this line is very pointed. He says, now that's discrimination. <laughs> like, like you want to tell me about discrimination? Let's talk about that discount. That's discrimination. And it is, it is a line that makes you wince a little bit when you hear it. Um, but not as much as the man's acting <laughs> makes me wince. <laughs> Can you call it act? Can you call it act? This man, first of all, this couple definitely got these parts at least 10, no more than 15 minutes prior oh, no. to I, recording they, this scene. They got these they got these parts because they walked by this gas no, they, station when they, they were got filming. these parts because like, hey, they owned the gas station. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, yeah, these two, oh, God. The, the woman, as they, as they leave, so basically the shtick here is 
Ralph is like, I'll tell you what, I'll I'll buy a second case of beer if you give me that 10% discount. And the man's like, sure. And so, <laughs> and so Ralph's like, oh boy, I'll wait till I tell you about the, the steal that I got. And they leave. And then the wife like walks up to the counter and with literally fear in her eyes, <laughs> and she trembles because she's terrified to be on camera. She says, another one of them smart ass college kids talking themselves into buying two cases instead of one to which, to which her husband says lovingly yup <laughs> and that's it like that's their dialogue and my god do they steal the show <laughs> but he lets the camera linger on her for a few seconds after she says it she's just like staring awkwardly like she doesn't know what her to do. eyes are like like <laughs> jotting around like, she, like trembling this poor woman never acted before in her life and you know what good for her she's cemented in cinema history <laughs> for having this moment and you know what she got the words out of her mouth <laughs> so, so at least more than can, most more can... than a lot of people i've seen in indie film <laughs> <laughs> oh boy who are you telling <laughs> yeah. but I, I i also love that ralph buys two six packs of beer to last this four days there's literally six of them so they can each have two, two beer. beer. <laughs> whoa what a fucking party Calm down. yeah <laughs> <laughs> one outfit and two cans of beer per person that's all you're allowed <laughs> for four days for four days well not only that but they're drinking the beer during the ride so like they are like they're all throwing beer back so by the time they get to the location there's probably not any beer left so they arrive at this beach house and i do like the location of this because it does feel very isolated like there is literally nobody around throughout this film like even you know, when there's the exterior shots and stuff, generally you're, you're accustomed to maybe seeing like, oh, there's a person way in the background or a car driving by. They nailed the fact that this place is isolated as fuck. There's not a soul around. At least from the front, I'll say. At least from the front on the beach. When you see the rear view of the location, there's a glamorous trailer park. Maybe oh, like, I love the trailer park. Maybe like 15 feet away from it. So there is like, you know, there's a trailer park looming very close in the distance. There is, but you don't see, I guess my point was you don't see people. Like, yeah. they're literally the only people here. And when, when you do get the exterior shots of the lovely trailer park, it seems isolated. It does. Like you, don't see, you don't see cars parked in driveways. You don't see any of that. And, you know, it's the off season. It's winter, so it's to be expected. But I do like that aspect of the film a lot. I think it gives the film a lot of atmosphere. Yeah and creepiness to it because yeah they're they're out there by themselves there is not a soul around and what really sells it for me the location is honestly when they do get to the beach the 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 beach sequences are for me the most desolate you have these long stretches of of beach uh with like the ocean waves kind of crashing on the beach and you see like the pier off in the distance and it's actually rather effective especially at nightfall because it does look very stark you don't see a single soul around like you said so those moments actually really land for me i i love it when they take it to the beach i think it feels very unique i can't think of a ton of slashers that have like an oceanside kind of vibe at least from this era um so it does make this kind of location feel kind of set apart from other locations we've seen in other films so i do appreciate that angle yeah and then right away this film is establishing that it's giving me at least as a slasher fan this setup that I want from a slasher film. And that's just take a group of kids, put them in an isolated location and kill them off. That's it. That's what I want from a good slasher film. All my favorite slasher films from the eighties do that. Put them in a location. They're there to be picked off. I don't need a lot of 
you know, supernatural elements, whatever. I just put them in an isolated location and let the killer have at it. It's very similar to like slumber party massacre or, you know, intruder. You just have that one location and the people are being picked off. I love it. I love it. Ralph goes up to the house and Ed's going to give him the keys, but Ralph realizes that the door is unlocked and he's like, oh, something seems uneasy. So they all go up and go inside and the place is a mess. There are booze bottles everywhere. In Mike's words, geez, would you look at all this shit? <laughs> Let's also acknowledge that Mike is roughly 47 years old, whereas everybody else in this film is probably like 23, 24. And it does stick out like a sore thumb. And he does talk like a caveman. So he does kind of pop in a way that the others don't, but not for the betterment of the film. Mike is just distracting because it's. I think it's a struggle for him to get his dialogue out. Well, it's really funny. I went on the IMDb uh, to read a couple things because I wanted to make sure I had it right. And I just went to the trivia section. And literally, I believe the trivia section of the mutilator is written by the director himself. And there's this whole segment or this whole paragraph. You have to read it. Basically, the the, the, the condensed version of it is, yeah, everyone was great to work with. They loved each other, except uh, Maury Lampley, the guy that plays Mark. He was a pretty much an asshole. That's the gist of this paragraph is how big of an asshole this actor was. (laughs) I mean, he's got a good jaw. I'll say that the guy's got a good jaw, but he can't get a piece of dialogue out for his life. There's no emotion in anything he says. Um, uh, He's just kind of a meathead, which I guess works for the, the character to kind of set him apart from the other two because... You know, Ralph doesn't give off like a jock vibe at all. Ed doesn't give off a jock vibe. So Mike is definitely the jock. If anyone's going to sound stupid, it might as well be him. But his performance is definitely not what I would call good by any means. No. So the film, the house looks very lived in. And right away, Pam is concerned that someone has been in the house that wasn't his dad. And she wants to call the police because there's this moment where she picks up a glass of water and notices it kind of looks fresh. And she's like, how long do you think it's been since he's been here? And, you know, Ed's like, I don't know. And she's like, we should probably call the police just in case. And Ed says, no, you know, let's just wait. First of all, there are no police because, you know, the, the island's closed for the for the winter. They, they, the, there is an occasional police officer that would come and patrol the bridge. But that's it. And Ed c- consoles her by saying, I'll call my dad in the morning, and if he says anything's missing or whatever, then we'll call the police. Because they do then realize that a battle axe has been taken off the wall, too. But in the meantime, you're getting all of these different like people seeing different things. Like They go into this living room that's full of taxidermied fish and a big giant like teeth from a shark that... Uh, Ed says was pregnant. He's like, oh, this one was pregnant. And they're like, how do you know it was pregnant? He said, when my dad cut its belly open, a bunch of baby fish fell out of its stomach. The touring of the house in which they explore all of these random artifacts literally takes about 25 minutes. It is excessive. The volume of things that Ed Jr. shows to them to basically prove to the audience that his father is, in fact, fucking crazy um it is it is truly excessive and the things that he shows them are pretty extreme including a portrait of a man that his father ran over with with a jet ski that like a portrait like a framed image of a man's corpse casually hanging in the house that people like they pause awkwardly after Ed shows it to them, but then they never address that again. If I saw that, I'd be like, get me the fuck out of this house. Yeah, it's it's literally a, a man 
with his stomach tore open from a boat motor and it's framed and it's on their wall. And Ed's like, oh yeah, that's a guy that my dad ran over with a with his motorboat. And then everyone's looking at him. He's like, well, it was an accident. Okay, and maybe I would buy it if it wasn't framed in his home. And then, and then after that, they're like, oh, and and here here's a Mayan mask of of um of the god um uh, the, the rain god Ch- uh, Cha, and uh, it's real. He says, he's like, you know, my dad stole it. And they discuss how this mask was used for ritualistic sacrifices in which they killed virgins. And like, okay, that's really random and extreme. But then you see the mask and you're like, which fucking crew member's child made this paper mache mask for a, for a grade school <laughs> so project? Ridiculous. It is so poorly made. I would not buy that as a real mask. I'm sorry. Then there's the moment when Pam, or there's the moment when Sue sees the giant fish hook, the fishing gaff on the wall. She's like, oh, what's this? Foreshadowing. And then there's like this whole conversation about this pyramid sinker that is stuck in the wall that has a frame around it. And Ed has to say like, oh, my dad played, got drunk with his friends one night and they decided to throw these at the wall. And he was proud because his he won. So he put a frame around it. A lot. It's a lot of things that are very, very, very foreboding. And you as the viewer, like if it was just one of those things, I'd already be like, okay, well, this seems to, you know, make sense to me. It's obviously alluding to something. There's obviously a killer in our midst. But for, like, you to see six or seven things that are hinting that this guy is off his fucking rocker and ready to kill somebody, I just think they're far too passive in accepting of the things that they find within this house. Well, and then in the meantime, as, the, as Ed is showing them around, it keeps cutting to the garage, where we see that the dad is indeed there. He is camped out in one of the storage closets in this garage. And after the moment that uh, Pam realizes that there's a hook on the wall and she asks Ed what is supposed to be there. And he says, oh, that's my dad's prized possession. It's his battle axe. She's like, well, it's not there now. He's like, well, obviously, maybe he took it home with him. And she's like, I don't like this. We need to call the police. And he's like, I told you, we'll call in the morning. I'll call my dad. If he says it's missing, we'll call the police. And of course, you got to cut the, cut back to the dad in that storage uh, closet. And what is he doing? He's holding the fucking he's ass. Holding that, he's holding that fucking ass. Let's talk about the way they introduce the dad in the present day setting for a moment. It's Because it is shoehorned in there. Like, it is really sporadic, brief cuts of the father like it's not like they give you like one full sequence where it's like here's the reveal the father's in the basement here's some explanation let's roll with it they should they give you like like maybe two three second snippets of shots of the father like awakening within the the basement he has this like kind of closet where he hides in the garage basement area and so they like show him waking up and then they cut back and then they cut to him like holding onto the axe and then they cut back and it's really sporadic. It's really brief. And it makes for like a, a very like lackluster, ineffective introduction to who is the main antagonist of the film. Uh, they show his face clear as day. It's not covered. So, you know, for those of you who don't like an unmasked killer, just know. You're going to see this guy's face. You know exactly who it is. So there's no like mystery or intrigue. And then they just really kind of just casually inform the viewer that this guy's just there in the basement. They don't build up to it in a way that makes it feel at all suspenseful or, um, you know, tense or, uh, 
really have any form of buildup whatsoever. Like, let's be real. Like, it's kind of just sprinkled throughout these moments. And it feels like kind of almost like an afterthought. Like, they just had to get it out there. The guy's in the house. Let's get back to the story. So I don't think it's really um, doing the killer a lot of favors. The main antagonist a lot of favors in the sense of uh, introducing him as a menacing force. Because it just feels like... um, they kind of just kind of threw that aspect to the wayside so they could focus on the, the, the protagonist. Do you get what I'm saying? I do. And here's two things. A, I believe that the film could have benefited. And I'm not saying they had to like put a mask on this guy or whatever. I'm not even saying that. I think it's actually kind of interesting that they don't mask him and we know who it is. But I feel like the film could have benefited from just giving, at least in the initial first half hour of the film, just maybe a little bit more mystery as far as who the killer was. Uh, I think it's pretty pretty well established that it is going to be the father, but it doesn't need to be like then hammered in our face by showing him in the garage storage room waiting and wait with his axe. I would have preferred that they maybe did the reveal a little bit differently, like maybe with the first victim we see, you know, I I think it could have been a little bit more effective because you're kind of right right away when you see who the killer is, it maybe lessens the. I don't know the the suspense the 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 mystery obviously yeah the overall impact it, it loses yeah, ex- something. there you go the overall impact and then there's another thing is this killer is probably even though this is one of my f- favorite slasher films of the 80s I gotta say this is probably one of the most lackluster forgettable villains slasher killers of the era I don't mean his kills this motherfucker is brutal but I'm saying they don't give this killer a lot of personality and the actor bless his heart i don't think is strong enough to project any sort of intimidation anything like that it's he's very stoic throughout the entire film he's not given much to do so even like the final moments of the film with the confrontation it doesn't work as well as it could have because this killer has no no personality dare i say it just goes through the motions i don't know where they found this actor from but oof Oh, yeah, I feel you. And I actually I kind of want to build off that because I I think, you know, we discussed the story being kind of lackluster. Obviously, this is a very green crew that made this. But there's a few things that are hinted at here that I think are interesting. And I think if they would have played their cards right and maybe structured a little bit differently, his motivation could have been a lot stronger and more um, have more heft to it, you know, for the viewers uh, to really buy that this guy would follow through with this really maniacal plan that he sets up to kill his son. Um, You know, you have these moments coming up here where you start to see snippets of Ed Sr. kind of like daydreaming and fantasizing about killing his son when he was a minor. You see a daydream sequence of him shooting the kid in the chest. It's rather graphic. Uh, He's literally shooting a child. And then you see this really brief shot of him using the axe to cut his throat and you get this like throat slit where the blood starts pouring out these two different sequences and interesting concept, strong visuals in the sense of the fact they're going there. They're showing this kid, you know, killed, even if it's a a fantasy sequence, you're still seeing a kid, you know, die on camera, um, the visual of it. So I, I really feel like if they would have built up to this a little bit more with seeing these moments of the dad really losing his shit, progressively mentally crumbling leading up to his plan unfolding it would have really given this whole film a lot more of a 
of like a groundwork to build off of. But the fact that they just kind of toss it in there as these little throwaway moments that are kind of interspersed amongst what is the overall majority of the story, which is focused on the kids. And the, the dad's story really is an extreme afterthought. It doesn't do him any favors. There's some really interesting concepts here at play, but they're so minor. They're just moments in the movie. They're not sequences. They're these brief little moments that they just touch on. And I wish they would have given me more meat to chew on because I do think that they could have made this, uh, this you know, the father's motives uh, something far more interesting and really drawn the viewer in more and, and really not saying that they would have sympathized with him. But when you, you said this earlier, you know, his wife is killed by his son. That's an interesting concept to play off of. The hate and the hostility and the vengeance that he feels in him. They could have sold me more on his motives if they would have built off that more. And what they give us simply is not enough. Yeah, no, I and mean, you're correct. It's a bold choice for them to show him daydreaming about killing his child my thing was, why is he, you know, it does let us then know that by showing the father dreaming about killing his son, but not his adult son, the son as a child, you do get then that impression that this dad has been wanting to kill this kid for years now because he's not thinking about, he's not daydreaming about killing him as, a, as an adult. He's thinking about killing him as a kid. So that in my mind, that's like, oh, he's been wanting to do this for fucking ever. In his mind, this, his, his son is still that little fucker that killed and shot and killed his wife that's who he wants to kill you know he has no concept of his son is now a, a, an adult you know that has probably regrets and and all this stuff no he doesn't care about that in his mind his son is still that little fucker that shot and killed his wife which again interesting concept but they do nothing with it linda and mike go outside and of course they go down to the garage and open the garage door um, and there are two storage closets on each side of this garage. So there's a lot of play between, oh, which one is he in? But as they're in the garage, like finding shit to throw around, like Mike finds those pyramid sinkers things that he throws. He's like, oh, I wouldn't want to get hit in the head with one of these. And then they see the boat motor and he's like, do you think this is the motor that cut that guy up upstairs? This whole little bit, this whole little sequence here where they enter the garage I like a few things about it. I, I do want to take a moment because I've been kind of, I'm not slamming on the movie. It's just we're acknowledging the amateur aspects. But then there are also some really cool shots. Like the dad is in this closet this whole time, like you mentioned. And you've got this great shot when the garage lifts. You see the light come through like the slats of wood. And you see him like illuminated as he's watching. And the visual is really awesome. And he's kind of present through this whole sequence as you've got – Mike and Linda just kind of flirting with each other. Mike at one point puts on like the rubber uh, fishing gear and she says, uh, not bad, but your rubbers are too big. And he says, well, I've never heard that complaint before. <laughs> like implying he's got a big fucking dick, which I mean, he sounds stupid, so I would buy it. Um, but, you know, he's he's watching the whole time. I do like this little moment because he goes completely unnoticed. And he's kind of getting a, a grasp of just how many kids there are within the, the house at this time. And I guess this is the moment where he decides he will kill all of them. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also this moment where Linda's about ready to open the, the storage room door that the father is in. And she immediately gets called by Pam. He's like, get back up here and help. So they, uh, they, they leave just in time. They avoid being killed at least this time because the dad is behind there ready with that ax. And you get this little moment then where Pam in her, you know, little outfit comes down to try to, to, to put the convertible top up and lock up. And she does 
kind of look into the garage, maybe gets a little bit of a feeling that something's in there, but she just chuckles it off and heads back into the house where the group eats dinner and sensible Pam has made a duty roster so that they know who's going to clean up each night. So her and Ed are going to clean up this night. So Mike and Linda decide, Hey, we got the night off. Let's go watch walk on the beach. So they go walk on this beautiful, eerie beach. Oh God, this is where that delicate flute score comes into play. That lovely instrumental. It's very romantic. And again, it feels very ill-fitting in this movie, but I'll take it for what it is. Yeah. So they're, they're watching, they're walking on the beach and we get a POV of someone watching them. Back at the house, the other lame people who are supposed to be excited to be at a beach for the weekend, they're just playing Monopoly. Nothing more exciting than watching a bunch of fuckers playing Monopoly, I'll tell you that. So Pam, you know, even though they haven't been gone that long, she is concerned about Mike and Linda. She's like, I wonder where Mike and Linda are. And so the group decides that they are going to take a break from the game and go out to the beach to try to catch up with Mike and Linda, who now have stumbled upon this large pool that is covered with a giant white like tent. Yeah, it's like closed off for the season. I actually think this is one of the most effective locations in the film. I think that there's something really ominous about this location because it is tented. Um, and inside there's all these plants. You can tell they're probably plants that were brought inside for the season. Um, and they're kept around the pool, which is they stay, you know, filled with chlorine, which Mike informs Linda will kill the herpes, which is scientifically not factual. So it makes sense coming out of his mouth. Um, but it, this is one of the more visually stimulating sequences in the film. I mean, you do see these fuckers literally splash each other and float in the water for about 25 minutes. Uh, but I like what happens here. And it does launch into what is going to be the first kill setup. So... It's a cool sequence. Yeah, they decide to go skinny dipping, although we don't really see any skinny. We, I guess we do see her boobs here. In a, oh, we see boobs. Yeah, here in a minute we see her boobs. But they get in the water. Uh, it seems like it's, yeah, it's a very eerie setting because there's a light that's on that kind of illuminates the white tin and everything and gives the water this eerie glow. But the light goes out a couple times and Mike has to uh, turn it back on. And in the meantime, you know, they are, the other group is out on the beach, you know, kind of walk and trying to catch up with them, not knowing that they found this glamorous pool that they're in. In the pool, Mike and Linda are just kind of having fun. They're they're not really, you know, they kiss for a moment, but then they start fooling around in terms of like splashing each other and just hiding from each other under the water. And they seem to get separated quite a bit. And Mike goes underwater just as Linda comes up. And, you know, it's this whole game of like almost like hide and seek. There's this moment though where Linda... You know, she's up, Mike's underwater. Apparently she kind of starts to back float and she's like, oh, this feels so good. And then you get the first death scene of the film where the killer in slow motion comes up under from behind her underwater beneath her, grabs her and pulls her into the pool in very slow motion. A few things about this moment. Give me a a second on this because I got to dissect this one. First of all, this is probably one of the most famous famous visuals from the movie. Linda getting pulled down in that slow motion. I've seen it a lot in little montages and you know um, slasher compilations and so forth. I just I see this visual all over, which is funny because I do find this for the first kill. I find it very lackluster. I've been using that term a lot here. I need a new a new term to describe when I'm not impressed. Um, but yeah, so she just pulled underwater in slow motion. That's it. 
how Mike does not pick up that there is another person in the pool or that she has somehow gone missing um, is beyond me. Because I get it. You got chlorine in your eyes. Maybe you're not seeing each other. But after a while, like you're going to see somebody else registering in the pool. Think about when you've been in a big old pool before. You can still see in the water. You can see that there's somebody in there. So I'm not buying that he's not going to be able to spot her, let alone spot a third individual that's in the pool. So there's that. Second of all, the kill is literally just that shot of Linda going under. She's obviously killed because the next time you see anything of her, she's being dragged out of the pool by what is a nude Ed Sr. Because Ed Sr. has himself stripped down naked and gotten into the pool to kill. So you see his body like lifting her out of the pool and she's gone. How Mike also doesn't manage to come up for air over the entire course of this, I just, I don't understand. I don't get how he manages to fully haul a dead woman's body out of the pool and across the cement and hide it Within a time frame before this guy comes up for air, I don't buy it. Well, he hauls this body all the way back to the to the beach house. How did no one see him? How did he manage to do this? Dead bodies are not light. You know, and this is not a big burly Jason Voorhees. This is an elderly man. How did he not run into the other group who are just right outside on the beach? How did they not see this dude carrying a dead woman down down the beach? There's only one way to get to this house. It's down the beach. That's why it's a beach house, right? Yeah, the whole logistics of this kill makes zero sense. There's no way Mike would not have heard or seen. There's no way he would have been underwater that long. There's no way this old man would have carried this body all the way back to the house. I did read, though, that the original death scene was supposed to be Linda being speared with a spear gun from beneath when she was floating on her back, but they could not get the, um, they could not get the effect to work correctly. So they just said, fuck it because it was getting late. The actors were tired and they just decided to go with the drowning. I would have much rather have seen the spear death because yeah, for the first kill in a movie that's infamous for its death scenes, this is really, really lame. And you know, if you had never seen this film before, and this is the first death scene, you're going to be like, oh, okay. Oh, seriously. And especially for like the setup, like you know, I mentioned a moment ago, the location itself sells it. Um, you go into the scene thinking, oh, this is the potential to be a really great sequence. Um, and then it's not until Mike leaves the location that, you know, something does happen that's worthy of acknowledgement because that kill is actually pretty, pretty wild. But like for this location being only used for this sequence and being so different from everything else we, everything else we see over the course of the movie, I feel like at the end of the day, this location is highly underutilized and deserved more. Well, it does lead to, like you said, um, the, the first death scene of the film that's really impressive in terms of special effects uh and it is mike getting out of the pool he realizes that linda's not there he just thinks that linda uh has has is playing a joke on him because his clothes now are missing some of his clothes he's able to pull his pants off or pants on but a lot of his clothes are missing and as he's walking he's finding trails of his clothes that ultimately lead back to the beach house in the garage Right. So not only did Ed Sr., mind you, haul the body back, but he also managed to pick up Mike's clothes and and intentionally scatter it like breadcrumbs the whole way. So this guy's pulling double duty, 
hauling a body and dropping clothing to create a, a trail for Mike to follow. It's quite impressive. Well, it, it works because he gets to the garage and lo and behold, what is hanging on the doorknob to the storage shed? But Linda's panties. Those are some granny ass panties. They are granny panties. And Mike's like, ooh, ooh, this could be kinky or whatever he says. Well, he, he specifically says, first he says, well, thank God for small favors. And then he says another flat line. He says, I'm coming to get you. And then he says, what I really want is my jacket. <laughs> but then he says, I think I'm getting you a message. <laughs> and that, that's, that's his line delivery, by the way. Throughout this whole progression of this sequence, you're getting all these little one-liners and the guy's saying it with absolutely no charisma whatsoever. But finally, yeah, he thinks he's going to get some fucking pussy. He finds the panties. He opens one closet. Nothing's in there. And then... He goes to open the other one. And what is he greeted with? <laughs> a suspiciously silent chainsaw that suddenly erupts. <laughs> it's the it's it's the outboard it's the motor. It's the outboard motor from the boat. Um Oh, that, it's a yeah, motor. It's a I didn't motor. even notice that. I thought it was a chainsaw. No, it's a boat. It's the boat motor. Oh, I love that that's so tied to the actual material. I honestly like because you literally this happens fast. Dude opens the closet, you see a shot of of Ed Sr. holding the thing. It's Revan. Then it cuts over to Mike's face reacting, and pretty soon you just see shots of his body like flailing and everything, and there's smoke. But it's it's pretty hard to see the actual piece of equipment. I'm happy you pointed that out because I've always thought that was a chainsaw. No, it's the outboard motor. Um, yeah, so he gets he's getting sliced in the chest, and this dude's reaction... It's big. Is, ugh, it's big, it's dubbed, it's... it's <laughs> It's not in sync with his body flailing, but hey, it's pretty gr- it's pretty brutal. And I love the shot, the really close up shot of that you get of Big Ed, you know, as he's holding this motor and the blood and the smoke, the blood splattering on him and the sm- it's smoking really. It's really, really a cool death. This actor, I mean, he doesn't even like he's like, and then he like drops to his knees, but doesn't like fall over. But this actor literally saved all of his personality for his death spasm because when he gets this thing to the body he's just pulsing and then then a big ed pulls it away and the guy's still just standing there flailing he's got his right arm just like twitching up beside him and he like goes for like a solid like five seconds before he finally falls over and dies and it is it is comedically over the top i mean the gore looks amazing but this guy's death scream is so exaggerated um it almost ruins the moment but the effect is so good that it doesn't oh yeah because you do get the shot the full shot of his chest and and stomach area just tore to shreds by this motor but yeah it's quite a quite a performance quite a quite a death scene it all came down to that for that guy it was he's like this is my big scene and And he's never he's never done it he's never done anything since i wonder why i know but it does lead to then this really um brutal moment where we see that big ed has a penchant for dragging these bodies into the closet and impaling them on spikes via slamming their heads against the spike oh yeah that shot with linda's head mm-hmm. if, if you feel it you're like oh if that doesn't make you like if that doesn't make you like cringe when he slams her head against that spike oh yeah yeah that was that was one of my favorite little details like you know every Every great killer in every slasher movie has 
a little something that sets them apart, you know, whether it be Candyman's hook or Leatherface's chainsaw or uh, Freddy's glove. And well, I wouldn't say this guy necessarily has like a great look or a lot of personality, Big Ed. Um, he does have this whole little moment where you find all the bodies eventually like revealed hanging off the wall. And you know that these spikes are going through their heads because there's a whole row of them. He's got a row of spikes set up for all these corpses. I like that. It does feel specific to this character. The remainder of the group are, are looking for, you know, Mike and Linda on the beach when they are startled by this cop who's wandering around on the beach by himself. This guy is literally here just to die. <laughs> he, is, he is. He is. He's like, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, well, we're staying at the speech house. That's the only one out here with the lights on. We're closing it up for the winter. And then P- Pam's like, oh, I feel like there was somebody in there today. There's missing items and the door were, was unlocked. So the cop is like, oh, okay, well, I'm not going to call it in yet. I'll just wait for you to call me tomorrow to let me know if the stuff is really missing or not. So he goes back to the house radios from his police car that we don't see he's like oh i'm gonna go investigate a possible 1003 he goes to the house kind of walks around checks it out checks around the porch it's all very quiet and as he turns to head back to his car he is met with big ed who proceeds to stab him in the face with a sharpened like two by four yes yeah great effect yeah and you you get the whole shot of him holding this big old board sticking out of his cheek and he's like and then ed casually chops his head off with the axe and it's full you see the head fly off you see the torso on the ground with the blood spurting out of the neck you see the decapitated head you see ed pick the head up off of the ground and carry it with him i mean it's it's pretty graphic, and for 1984, I mean, good practical effects. Good practical effects. I'm going to say this. Up to this point, everything we've seen has been fine. This, though, has no business looking this good compared to everything that's come before it. Like, even the last kill with Mike, um, it was passable. The effects look good, but, you know, it's, it's just chopped up torso you know is bloody and gory i mean there's a lot of blood but you really don't see anything in the sense of like an amazing prosthetic for example it's just gory you see the chest but it's just like cuts across it that that's really all it is you don't see like the inside of his torso then you come to this and i don't fucking know where you've got this decapitation sequence that honestly i think is pretty fucking phenomenal like the the the, the two-by-four to the cheek alone is pretty fucking effective. Like, it's such a unique placement where the wood goes through his face. It's not like it goes through the bottom of his chin or through his temple. It literally goes through the side of his jaw. Like, it looks so painful. And because, like, that's the soft area of the jaw, I buy that that would bust right through your face. I would have taken that. But then to follow it up with that decapitation where you see the whole fucking inside of, like, the neck, like you're saying, like, you see, like, the blood pumping, you see like the inside of the throat and everything. It's so detailed. And then it like falls towards the camera and everything. Honestly, I feel like this movie doesn't deserve to have a kill that looks this good because it is great. It's almost better than this decapitation is almost better than the, the famous decapitation at the end of Friday the 13th. I mean, you don't see any of the, you know, in the in the Friday the 13th decapitation, if you're paying attention, you can see the toothpick sticking out of the neck that was holding oh. the fake Betsy Palmer head up. This looks way better. It looks way more realistic. The blood is just pumping. It looks like real blood. The neck stump looks like what you would expect. It's all 
Oh, it's yeah, it's really, really, really well done. I mean, and, and this is when we realize this film is starting to kick into high gear, you know, with its death scene. And to build off what you're saying, Troy, honestly, because this is a thought I had too. I think this moment moving forward is this film, I think, could have really launched to be something more at the end of the day if it had a killer attached to it that was more impressive like say what you want about the friday the 13th which we recently reviewed for patreon because it's not a perfect movie it's got a few good kills but i'll say that the good kills in this in my opinion are better i really think so the really standout kills in this that finale whoo like wait till we get to that better gore better kills but friday the 13th had a cast that was just overall more capable and chock full of personality. And it also had a a killer reveal that was unexpected, you know, same concept. It's an angry parent at the end of the day, you know, not killing her, not killing, uh, you know, she's not killing her own child. In that case, she's defending her own child, but it's still an angry parent, but they gave her a fucking moment of a reveal that kind of took the audience's breath away and really let her develop as a character. She's only on camera for like, what, like maybe seven minutes. I don't know, you know, seven to 12 minutes maybe, but she makes the fucking most of it and they give her so much to chew on. She's just so well-developed within that short period of time that you actually see Pamela Voorhees. This killer, Big Ed, with if, if it, with the right script, could have had a great motive, and could have been something really standout. And you know, top that off with these phenomenal kills that we're about to experience moving forward. I really think that this movie would have had more of a recognizable title. It could have gone on to do a lot more. It's just the script is weaker, and the villain is weaker, and his overall execution is, like you said, just it leaves something to be desired. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. But I mean, again, you can't deny the the amazing special effects. So the group heads back to the house while they're talking about various things. They're talking about seashells. They're talking about Pam being a virgin. Oh, yeah. They really throw that out there. Yeah, a couple times. They make it clear that this girl does not want to have sex. Yeah. So Ed, when they get back to the house, Ed suggests that they play a different game since not all of them can really enjoy Monopoly. Ralph says he just wants to go to bed, which... You know, he wants to fuck, but they're like, nope, nope, nope. We're not going to bed yet. And then he teases Pam with that fucking sacrificial mask until she knees him in the fucking groin and then throws him onto the floor. She's like, I'm tired of your bullshit. For a split second, she becomes Aaron from Your Next, which we recently reviewed. We recently reviewed that one as well. So she becomes Aaron from Your Next for 10 seconds. And then all of a sudden she goes back to being very demure. Um, I like that, though. I like that she's portrayed for a moment as a girl who like will be sweet and polite up to a certain point but you piss her off enough that she can in fact kick your ass i wish they would have explored that more then there's this whole sequence which is honestly one of my least favorite parts of the film i could fast forward through this it's when they decide to play blind man's bluff and it literally goes on for like 10 minutes and i get there's some suspense built in so sue decides that she's going to be it so the others go outside to drink beer while she you know turns off all the lights and hides behind this table and then literally for like 10 minutes you get the group wandering around the house trying to find out where uh, where she is and they're each finding her and each time they find her they have to get under the table with her so it ends up 
Pam finds her right away, so gets under the table. Ralph comes in and he's, you know, gets scared by this taxidermied fox, but then he ends up going in the kitchen and finds her, gets under the table. In the meantime, it's spliced in with the father, Big Ed, coming into the house with the axe, kind of walking around lurking. And then there's this moment where little Ed is the only one that's not hidden. So he's wandering around the house. And at the same time, the father's in there with the axe and you're thinking, okay, what's going to happen? But nothing really plays out. He goes into the kitchen and gets a beer and he's like, Oh, anybody else want a beer? Like he knows right away where they're hiding. I do like the moment where the killer comes into the kitchen and Ralph, Sue and Pam under the table, but they don't realize that it's the killer. They think it's Ed, right? So they don't realize how close they were to catching this guy. So this moment pops for me. I'm going to say this. I mean, overall the blind man bluff bit goes on for a bit too long. You're right. But I told you when we when we discussed reviewing this, I was like, I know I've seen this movie, but it's been a long time. It really, it's been probably like 10 years since I watched this. Up to this point, I was barely remembering anything. Um, I, I remembered some of the moments of gore. Like I definitely remembered Mike's kill, but I vividly remember seeing this scene and I must've watched it at the right time with the right group of people because when it comes to the moment, of everybody hiding, you know, they're like, they're behind the kitchen table, which is kind of like a picnic bench. There's a cooler on top of it. They have the lid up and they're all kind of hidden behind it. And it's supposed to be dark. It's not dark enough, but it's supposed to be dark. And Big Ed walks in and the way that they pace it out for a moment, it genuinely does take on an element of suspense because they're all positioned where they can't see him. They're hiding and they almost give away their, their hiding place, but they go undetected and, and and Big Ed does wander eventually back, you know, into the basement. It's done really well. It's a suspenseful moment. I would have loved to have seen more moments like that all throughout the film. There's so much potential for uh, these big kind of drawn out suspenseful sequences that you know I love. You know I love those, Troy. I wish I saw a few more of those here because this is just touching on that, um, but it's not enough of a payoff. Does that make sense? Yeah, I get it. I, I could get why this scene would be memorable. I mean, the the image of Big Ed kind of stalking through the house with the axe in his hand and knowing that these kids are just, you know, feet away from from him and don't even realize it. And then the moment when and, you know, little Ed comes into the kitchen and is drinking out of the refrigerator and you see Big Ed behind him in the hallway and you think, oh, shit. But then he turns around and goes back outside and goes downstairs to the garage slash ba- basement. It is really Really, there is, you know, a moment there where it is really tense. The film itself, though, I wouldn't say is a very suspenseful film. This film tends to lean on the side of just going in, getting the job done in terms of killing characters. There's not a lot of stalking that leads up to their deaths. It's pretty much the victim runs into the killer and is dispatched. There's no chase. There's no nothing. There is this moment between Pam and Ralph where she is still worried about Mike and Linda, of course, they haven't been back. And Ralph does assure her in a very kind way that, you know what, they're, they're okay. They're okay. And then they go up to bed and even Pam is like, you know what? Ralph isn't that bad a guy after all. And poor Ed, it starts to like take off his pants to get into bed. And she's like, no, no, sir. No, mister. You know, our, you know, my rule. And she makes it very clear. She's not putting out. Yeah. Yeah. She is pretty cold. She makes it clear. She's like, get the fuck out of here. She does say, oh, you know, I want to, but I there for a moment, I will say this. I there for a moment thought she was going to tell him that he couldn't sleep in the bed, 
with her. I'm like, bitch, no, this is his house. <laughs> you know, you might not go. Yeah. A very weird, weird dynamic yeah. between those two. But I guess it's sweet because he is, he seems smitten with her, but it's like almost like they're more like, like brother and sister through the film. Yeah. And like, you never see him like really like have any affection because she is so cold. Well, she's, you know, not only she played as virginal, she's played as uptight. There's like, you know, there's a difference between like pure and demure, which we've seen in, in characters like a Sydney Prescott, for example, who, you know, we get her down to her bra, but it, it takes her a minute to really get there. She's so shy about it versus Pam, who, I mean, she's just like kind of a bitch about it. You know, it's they're they're both handling the virgin thing from two different fucking angles. I prefer Nev Campbell's, um, but I still like Pam. I do like that she stand, like sticks to her guns. Like you had that moment earlier with Ralph where she basically beat his ass. Now you have her being kind of strong and forceful. Uh, with Ed Jr. So it does at least give her a trait of being like very like uh, steadfast and she's not going to be swayed. She's not meek by any means. You know, she's pretty forward. She speaks her mind. Yeah, I mean, I I like Pam enough. I mean, she could have had a lot of potential, but there really isn't given much to do in in the finale of the film. There is a brief shot of then Ed back down in the garage where he slams the cop's torso on the spike, which is pretty gnarly. Uh, And then we go up to Sue and Ralph making out when Sue realizes that they didn't lock up. Why she would think of this at this moment, I don't know, but she does. And she tells Ralph he needs to go find uh, Mike and Linda and lock up because she has something to show him, she says very seductively as she's caressing her ample bosom she's like when you come back up i have something to show you and then you get this cheesy fast forward that i could have done without of him putting his clothes on real quick it's oh all, i it's fucking hate it's it it's stupid it's stupid why did they oh do this my God. what the fu- what is this charlie fucking chaplin yeah it's like what the fuck it really feels so out of place in this movie it, it really takes you out of the moment for a moment it does because this film, the tone of this film so far has been pretty, pretty serious. Yes, there's comedic elements that are embedded in that we discussed that, that fall flat. A lot of the jokes fall flat, but for the most part, this the tone is pretty serious. And then to have this, you know, I was like, oh, it's no. an amateur, amateur move. It is. Really it's is. a moment where they're like, oh, this will be cool. <laughs> Look how fast he wants to. But we didn't really need it. He could have just grabbed his pants real quick and in in normal motion, bolted out of the room. But he does knock on Ed and Pam's room to tell them that if they hear anything downstairs, it's just him. Don't worry. Pam opens the door and she they, they come face to face for a minute. Real awkward. There's like some weird like sexual undertones to Ralph and Pam. I don't know if you've caught that. Oh, I definitely did. There's moments earlier where he's picking her up and running her into the water. They're always like kind of touching on each other. He's he's makes sexual innu- innuendos to her several times throughout the film. They have more chemistry with each other than they do with their counterparts. Oh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. She's like, please be careful. And he's like, I will. <laughs> and goes uh, outside to call for Micah and Linda. Uh, no answer. Of course, he goes into the garage and the lights won't turn on. For some reason, he is diehard believes that Mike and Linda are in this garage because we are treated to about five minutes of dialogue of him talking 
to the garage like Mike and Linda are there. Well, he finds those panties and he's like, I get what's going on here. But they're obviously they're not answering him. He's having this whole conversation with them and there's no answer until finally he's like, oh, I guess I have to lock up for the night because I got something to go see. So I will make sure you guys are down here safe. So he proceeds to get a hammer and nail. And this dude is really going <laughs> to na- nail the door shut. Right before that, though, he does take one of those pyramid sinker things and starts throwing it at the door. And the the noise wakes Big Ed up, who literally was just in the house. So how is he falling asleep this quickly? But apparently he was asleep because it wakes him up. And now Ralph is getting ready to hammer the door shut. Luckily, because that could be that could have been a disaster, like locking, hammering, nailing people into a room where they can't get out. I mean, what if what if the (laughs) house got a trap? (laughs) <laughs> well, I I think what he's really trying to do is I think he is hearing the movement of Big Ed and knows there's someone in there and just naturally thinks it's them because he found the panties. This is my thought. It's not necessarily played out where this is easy to register this. It, it is very confusing what's going on, but that's what I'm taking away from it. So he's talking to them because he thinks they're in there because I think he actually senses that Big Ed is in there which is a creepy moment in and of itself. Um, and so everything he's doing is trying to like get them to finally respond. And then he's like, I'm going to nail you in there. But then even he says, I, I couldn't really do it. Yeah. He has a, he has a second thought. Thank God. And instead he opens the door to tell them, Hey, you better come out if you're in there. And again, like every other person that opens this door in the, in this film, he is greeted by big Ed who has like this five pronged spear thing that he proceeds to shove through Ralph's neck. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. You get, you get a, the, the, the initial impact of it because you get like three different angles of it. it looks really great. You even see the prongs come out the back of the neck. And then there's this prolonged scene of big Ed pushing Ralph back against the opposite wall as Ralph is like screaming and holding on to the base of the little mini pitchfork thing. And it, you can see it, it's in it. It's in his neck. The effect now kind of looks, you know, around the neck, you can see a lot of the latex has clumped together, but it still looks really good. And then there's that moment where he gets Ralph to the opposite wall and slams him against it really hard as, and pushes the thing in even deeper until it breaks off into Ralph's neck and impales him then on the door, the opposite door. I mean, it is bloody. It is brutal. Does the camera never flinches away from from what you're seeing? I mean, it's pretty pretty graphic, and it's the end of probably the the most interesting character in the film. I think it's the first loss you have in the the movie where you actually feel somewhat connected to the character. Uh, everyone else who has died up to this point has been kind of throwaway or comedically bad, uh, and now you've got the one character that really does have charisma, and he's deceased. So it does feel like, in a way, it. Dun, 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 raises the stakes. I always like to use that term because now you've lost somebody of value. Uh, yeah, I kind of felt bad for poor Ed to meet his demise this brutally. Although it's not the most brutal death in the film that's coming up, which we I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about. Uh, Pam hears something and she tries to wake Ed up, but he doesn't budge. Sue has been upstairs, you know, reading this book. She realizes, God damn, Ralph has been gone quite a while. She gets out of bed. And in the meantime, we get a shot of the killer coming back into the house and grabbing that giant fishing gaff off the wall. 
you knew it was coming with this. Like you knew that this was going to be put to use. There's no way you're going to introduce a massive gaff the the length of a human being and not put it to work. Oh, and it's put to work. Pam again, she's hearing all this rustling, so she gets up and actually goes out to check what's going on and she gets to Mike and Linda's room and opens it and a dummy falls down in the doorway and it was it scares her but we realize it was Ralph's attempt to scare Mike and Linda because earlier in the film he makes a little comment about how surprised they're going to be when they get back and they're like oh Ralph what did you do to them so she goes up and then she actually wakes Ed up for real she's like Ed you got to get up and She's like, the kids are gone. Everyone's gone. Nobody's in the room. Please get up. And he's like, no, go away. I do love that reaction. Yeah. Because it's normal. Like, I'd be like, yeah, leave me. And she's like, God damn it. Get up. They're missing. Uh, Linda is outside in her nightgown looking rather, you know. Elegant. Elegant in this beautiful flowing, you know, breeze blown. Supple breasts to to the air. Just hanging loose. No brassiere. She looks like she's. Ready to make love. Her hair down, tousled. She does look very sensual. Well, Ralph's not outside, but who is outside is the killer as he's stalking behind her with the axe and she doesn't see him. She gets inside just in time. And right right when she gets in the entryway, she runs into Ed and Pam. She's like, I'm so scared. Please help me find him. Girl ain't given her best performance here in this moment. I'll say she's a little bit stronger than, than Linda, but Sue definitely isn't selling me. Uh, for the most part, with a lot of her, you know, bigger panicking sequences. But she's lovely to look at. That whole stalking scene leading up to this was interesting. Like, it was an interesting setup that she's running around this building and has no idea that he's pursuing her. You keep thinking he's going to cut her outside, but he doesn't. Pam notices that the back door is open. And I love this moment because Pam is a no-nonsense kind of gal. She sees that the back door is open. She realizes somebody has been in the house. She's like, we are getting the fuck out of here. And Ed's like, no, no. And she's like, nope, we're leaving right now. Linda says, I can't leave without Ed. And she's like, hell, we are. We're going. Go up and get dressed. We're, t- we're getting out of here. So Sue runs up and gets dressed and comes back down. They're all outside. And as they get ready to leave, Sue's like, I can't leave, Ralph. Can we please go and look one more time? And Pam looks at Ed and they're like, fine, one more time. I'll, we'll go this way. You go that way. So they break up and, and Pam and Ed go around one way because Pam makes it clear that she is not going without Ed. She's like, I'm going with you. We're going. So they go one direction. Sue goes the other. And the second that she turns the corner of the house, that killer is right there with his axe, grabs her by the neck, lifts her off the ground, proceeds to lead her into the garage where he slams her on the workbench in the back of the garage. And all of a sudden we see that giant fishing gaff. And Roger, what does he do with this giant fishing gaff? Troy, he goes fucking fishing (laughs) into her vagina. It is shocking in concept. It is a shocking idea. The fact that they, went there they hooked a woman up the vagina and this is not a little hook because it goes into her vagina and then it comes out through like you know under her navel um and i i like like the way she plays this even though there's a few weird little pauses where you're like why aren't you screaming like why are you reacting but when she gets that hook through her hoo hoo ha ha her eyes go wide and she's just like her breath's like taken away and she's just like looking at him like oh 
my fucking God, did you just stick a, a hook in my pussy? Oh, and it's graphic. She's gra- It comes out of her navel, and she's holding on to the end of it, and he is just lifting it up. There is this aerial shot. At, if you, I don't know if you caught it that like from above where he yanks it and it pulls her off of the, pulls her whole bottom off of the bench for a second, and she like reacts by like, oh, it's it's really brutal. And then she he proceeds to take the axe and chop her with it. But yeah, uh, in, in retrospect. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, okay, this actress, if I had a, if I don't have a vagina, but I'm assuming it would have to be painful as hell to have a giant hook shoved up it. I'd be screaming my goddamn head off. This actress's reaction is very low key, but I, upon a couple of viewings, I'm like, you know what? She'd be in fucking shock. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I think you'd be in disbelief that someone was actually doing this to you Yeah. to the point where you would be like, just frozen with like, I, what the fuck is this really happening? Perhaps Roger, this is one of the more graphic, br- brutal death scenes to come out of the eighties. This, they went there. Oh, yeah. I mean, very few films would go there. And this one did, you know, Sleepaway camp, for example, has a very similar death with a curling iron. They won't, they don't show it. It's very much implied. This went there. I mean, guys, if you have not seen this film, this scene is fucking wild. I, I cannot believe they got away with it. Then again, it was the mid eighties, but it's, it's graphic. I think for them to be able to show this moment now in 2023 would be approached very differently. I think that, you know, looking at this now in, in retrospect, the only way they were able to make this kind of sequence work is to have had her clothed. And in a way, being as desensitized as I am to really extreme gore, because now you see cuckoo shit all the time. You know, they're always trying to see, like, what can we do to be more shocking? You know, terrify or saw in a girl upside down and so forth and so on. Um, this is both brutal and graphic, but also it, it's still, you don't see actually any of the nudity when it happens. And that, in a way, makes it more terrifying to me. It doesn't feel like it's done for the sense of sexual exploitation. It's just done because it like feels like it would be absolutely a horrifying experience to happen to a woman. It doesn't feel sexually exploitive. It just feels absolutely gruesome. And even when he lifts her, like you see her shirt drop a little bit and her stomach is just covered in blood. Like you know that she is just bleeding out from this. It is just so violent. But you never see a breast. You never see. You never see, even see her in her panties. She's fully clothed, and I think that really does this scene a lot of favor in the long run uh, because it doesn't make it in any way feel um, over the top in any way other than horror, pure horror. Yeah, I mean, I do think I agree. I do think this is the scene that really cemented this film as being sort of a cult classic because this film is known. I mean, this film isn't like super, super obscure. This film is pretty well known. I mean, it's, it's, it has definitely its fans. And I think this scene kind of solidified the fact that this is probably one of the more brutal, gruesome slasher films to come out of the eighties. And and the fans of this film, I think that's why they flock to it because it does go there. It's pretty unrelenting when it comes to its gore and its death scenes the, you know this killer does not fuck around this killer is not comedic this isn't a freddy krueger cracking jokes you know this is a killer whose sole purpose is to kill these group this group of kids in the most painful horrific ways possible because he himself has experienced such a trauma because of his son so in his mind he is reaping 
what his son sowed, right? He's getting revenge. How dare you bring these fucking people to my house after what you've done to my wife? How dare you? Because I don't think the father had any clue that Ed was going to bring his friends. I think the whole, the father's whole plan was you come to this beach house and close it for the winter. And his whole plan then was to kill Ed when Ed showed up there. I don't think the father had any idea that Ed was going to bring along these friends. So this is his ultimate revenge. It's like, I'm going to fuck these people up. And he does it so like emotionlessly, right? When you do see his face when he's killing, it's so like blank. I mean, he's he's a, inflicting this horrible pain and brutality on these people, and he's doing it almost so casually. So after this horrific death scene, Ed and Pam come back around, and they, they go into the garage, and Pam immediately sees uh, Sue laying on the bench and she goes over to sue and is like sue and touches her and sue's head falls off it's a little hokey after such a the head the head's terrible terrible looking it looks nothing like no and they they try to you know kind of hide it and shadow it and they do the very best they can but like also like this girl was just horrifically murdered and like for these two to walk into the garage and not recognize that that body is drenched in blood and hanging limply off that bench like it's it feels like that moment in scary movie where anna ferris who plays cindy she's walking towards um brenda who just was killed by the ring girl and she's completely dead and she's like brenda are you okay and she like touches her and her head falls off and she's like Brenda, like it feels like that. Like it's so obvious that this girl is dead, and not only that, but her head is completely severed from her body. <laughs> like I don't understand how these two didn't realize that. Yeah, well, they don't. I guess it's it's hinted at that it's so dark, but it's really not dark. There's a lot of light coming in, so they should be able to see it. But the head falls off. This causes uh, Pam to have go hysterical. She's like, "Oh my god, cover it up, cover it up!" And then you see the shadow of the killer with the ax coming towards the garage. So little Ed immediately pushes Pam into the, the, one of the storage closets. And as the, as big Ed comes into the garage, he hits him with a shovel, but is immediately then knocked out by his father. His father like punches him and he goes down to the ground and he's knocked out immediately, immediately. There is a moment also when uh, Sue's head falls off that the, they open the other door to the storage closet and we do see all the bodies and they're hung on the hooks, which is pretty cool. But yeah, little Ed goes down immediately. There's a moment where like the killer starts to drag Sue's decapitated body into the closet to hang it on a hook. And then he goes to Ed and gets ready to, I mean, he raises the ax above and he's getting ready to kill his son. And Pam, being the the good virginal girlfriend she is, busts out of the closet and she screams, no! And she starts like throwing all this random shit at him. And little Ed tries to grab him to prevent him from going over to get her. And Big Ed stabs him in the leg with the sharp pointed end of the battle axe. I find it really interesting, Troy, that this, this ending builds to kind of this final climactic moment that... I mean, they work together. Pam and Ed Jr. work together. But it kind of becomes Pam's finale. Oh, it's definitely Pam's finale. And I think while I really like that for Pam, because, you know, her character has been uh, one of the one of the more developed characters within this film. I mean, at least she has 
um, you know, a very defined personality. She has uh, certain morals, you know, she's got a, a strong moral code. She's pretty, like I said, steadfast and firm in, in, in her opinions. I like these traits of her, um, but I still feel like she's very secondary to Ed Jr.'s story. Ed Jr.'s story is like the anchor of this film. It is it is all revolving around him. And so when it does take the route of him getting A, knocked out, and then B, injured, and really kind of forcing her to take the wheel, it feels kind of like a, a missed opportunity. It is an interesting choice. I had thought the same thing because the whole buildup of the film is this father wanting to kill his son. So you would definitely are expecting that the final confrontation is going to be little Ed and his father battling it out. I wouldn't expect, you know, I'm not saying I expected Pam to die, but like I, I was expecting the final battle to be between those two. You know, these are the two that have acts to grind with each other. Right. So you would expect that, but no, literally from this point forward, Ed is little Ed is worthless. I mean, he's injured. He's injured gravely. He can barely, he can't walk. So Pam has to step it up and boy, does she step it up? I mean, she wastes no time grabbing a, a, a ruler. That's like a knife. It's like, it has a sheath on it, but you pull it out and it's a knife. And this, this, this Pam charges this motherfucker and, and plows that knife into his chest. Oh yeah. She becomes a badass for a second here. And it's, it's impressive to see this from this character, it, it really is. I, I really like that she got to have a strong moment like this. She also th- throws one of those pyramid things at his face and it embeds in his cheek. Oh my God. It's, some of this shit's great that she's doing. She's she's not somebody who uh, uh, becomes too meek to defend herself. She, in fact, is the opposite. She is really stepping up to the plate. I'm not even saying that I would have necessarily even needed Ed to have more of the physical showdown even because I like that so much from her. I really do. I think it does her well. I would have liked to have seen an emotional moment of of, um, development between the father and son relationship other than the fact that you realize like at the very end of the movie, he looks back and he's like, it's my dad. <laughs> His one line. I, they could have really had a moment where the dad like was revealed here and it became like a big moment for Ed Jr. And, and that's also where I think it's lacking. Like why is that not more of a revelation here? You know? Yeah. It's really downplayed. Like, it's really downplayed the revelation that Ed has that this is his father. It's 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 such a like you said a missed opportunity for a little bit of an emotional impact. We again we know it's a slasher film, but you know missed opportunities that really w- wouldn't be that difficult to include in the film because like I said, little Ed is in pain. She has to literally drag him into the car. You know they try to start the car. Of course it won't start because it's hit at numerous times at this car has issues starting. Um, she tourniquets you know, his leg. <laughs> she does. She tourniquets his leg because he's like, I'm feeling terrible. I need to get to the hospital. We do see the killer get up. As she's tourniqueting his leg through the windshield, we see the killer get up. And there's this moment when she has a tourniquet on. She turns the headlights on and notices the body is gone. And she's like, oh my God, please fucking start. I mean, she starts freaking out. Big Ed, in the meantime, climbs on the roof of the car and proceeds to start chopping through it with the axe at this point this shit becomes in my opinion phenomenal i'm gonna say oh it's great it's great i love this scene this is probably one uh one of my favorite finales i mean you got two strong performances by both the actor that plays ed and of course 
Pam Ruth Martinez is the actress's name. She is given it her all. There's this scream she lets out that is among one of the best I've heard in a horror. Film. Oh yes, like the minute the minute that axe comes through the roof, she lets out this blood curdling scream. She's trying to get the car started. She's like frantic. Please fucking start. In the meantime, he grabs Ed by the neck. Big Ed grabs Little Ed by the neck and is choking him. She's trying to get him to let go. He's not letting go. Little she, Ed passes out. <laughs> he passes out. Well, she, she, he, I mean, this, this Little Ed is fucking worthless. Um, and so she actually presses the cigarette lighter in because kids in the old days, cars used to have cigarette lighters, which you pushed in. It was like a little like metal thing. You pushed it in after a few seconds, it would pop out and it'd be red hot. And that's what you used to light your cigarette. She does that. And she burns this fucker's hand with it. And he causes him to like fall off the car, roll off the roof. Um, and this is like the moment where Ed realizes that this is his father. He sees him and he's like, Oh my God, it's my dad. Well, there's also in the background to kind of layer on, the tension you see the police arrive in the distance. So like this is all happening and like they're just feet from safety and the police are just trying to realize what's happening. I, I like that little detail there. And so she is, man, she is selling the fuck out of it. That lighter bit. I was like, girl, you deserve to survive this film. Ed jr. Does not, but you Pam have earned this, but Oh, what she does here, Troy. Mm. Oh yeah. She notices that the um that big ed is starting to crawl back onto the back of the car the back of the trunk of the car and she wastes no fucking time she slams that car into reverse puts that pedal to the floor backs up into a fucking brick wall smashing him against it cutting this motherfucker in half his guts are hanging out this is a great effect this is one of the single best effects i have seen from a slasher of the era and they take it so far and everything they do with this uh, whole sequence moving forward is breathtaking. It's phenomenal. This is the moment I was wrong. This is the moment that Ed turns around and sees that it's his father, you know, and his father is literally cut in half. The police officer's like, go pull the car away. Cause this police officer shows up and it's like, pull the car away, pull the car away. Are you guys all right? Uh, and as he's kind of motioning them to move the car this police officer is just standing there trying to help these people when in his last like hooray of life, I guess you'd want to say <laughs> big Ed chops this motherfucking police officer's leg off with the axe. Oh my God. And then he's like chuckling about it. He's so <laughs> yeah. pleased with himself as he dies. Yeah. He's, That's what I he's dying chuckling. He's like, <laughs> he didn't even kill the police officer either. He, he chopped his leg off, but that police officer survived. He just was kind of like, fuck you. It was his final fuck you to somebody, anybody that poor police officer just happened to be there. But this whole separated torso effect with his intestines hanging out, I mean, it just, it blows me away. It really does. I, I can't think of a better effect, a stands maybe like um like a Return of the Living Dead kind of, you know, similar kind of looking separate torso effect. I almost would say that this impresses me more. I just think it's just such a standout, you know, 80s horror gore moment that really like, I, I'm shocked more people don't have that visual tattooed on them. You know, like true horror fans, like the image of him with the axe just sitting there, half of his torso with his intestines hanging out. It, it's, it's probably one of the best slasher finale moments of all time. No, it really is. And it, it, it just, it makes this movie 
you know, just that much more better than what it really is. I mean, there's this, there's, there's all these elements, these little elements of the film, and they all pretty much have to do with the gore that really elevate this movie into being a lot more memorable than it probably should be because remove the gore from this film and you got nothing. This film would not even be talked about. And if you don't believe me, dig up the R rated VHS version that went around for years. You could probably find it on YouTube to watch. It is literally cut of all gore. No gore, no blood, nothing. You you take all of that out of this movie, this movie would not even be talked about. We would not be talking about it now. There wouldn't be cavity color shirts and fright rag shirts about fall break. And it just would not be because that's what makes this film, dare I say, special um, is the fact that they went there and the effects for such a low budget, small crew, they pull them off big time. Oh, fuck. I mean, man, it, if anything, it's, it's inspiring and it motivates you as, you know, if, if any of you listeners are like Troy and I are like, you know, indie, indie filmmakers, like God, watching this inspires you as a filmmaker. It really does to try harder and pull off more. We know how hard it is and how long of setup it takes to, to do these effects on your film. Like, I don't think the average listener, the average viewer knows how long and what the process is to just do something as simple as a throat cut. Yeah. How long this, how long that setup is. You're talking, this is not something that's done in three minutes and God forbid you get the angle wrong or it doesn't work and you have to do, you have to apply it all over again. So we know that struggle and to see them pull this off with what seemed to be a very minuscule budget and a a novice crew, I got to say amazing. And it's what makes this film stand out. The gore, the fact that this film goes there, the fact that the film has this morbid, if you think about it, this film is fucking morbid. The fact that this father is so hell bent on killing his son, that is a disturbing thing to think about. And, you know, the film ends on the right. No, they could have just ended it there. Right. The credits should have started rolling there. There is like this tacked on 15 second scene that you think is going to go somewhere. Like first time watching, you're like, oh, is Ed going to is little Ed going to kill Pam now? Because it's a moment in the hospital where he's walking down the hallway. The nurse is there and he's like, how is she? And she's like, oh, she's the same as she has been before. And he goes into a room and Pam is sitting there in the hospital room, just kind of staring out the window. He goes up to her, touches her shoulder. She looks at him and smiles. and The movie ends. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, it really does feel like an unnecessary little moment, but um, I don't mind seeing the guy in a robe. He's not bad looking. Um, But yeah, you know, if anything, I'm happy that Pam has a moment of peace after all of this because uh, she's the only one that's really deserving of survival at this point. And she, I would say, is my other, at the end of the day, my other positive element to take away from this film, honestly, is when she needs to step it up, she steps it up. Um, she deserves a little more credit as a final girl who goes there and kicks ass. I think. I think so too. I think so too, because you know, why isn't she talked about more? She literally, you know, this father was out to kill a son. The son that proved to be a fucking worthless. He would have been killed immediately if it wasn't for her. She steps it up. She does what she needs to do. She gets the job done. I am glad that she is one of the actors from this first one that is going to be in the, yeah. the part two. She is one of the ones that came back. I am glad I'm going to, I'm, I'm really curious to see, you know, what they do, how she's, you know, how she's aged, how she's progressed as an actress, because she really hasn't done much since this film. Neither of them have Bill Hitchcock who plays Ralph is also coming back. Curious to see. Uh, I know that Terry Kaiser is taking on the role of the actor who plays Big Ed, which is interesting because I think the actor in real life died. Um, Jack Chatham is his name. So Terry Kaiser is playing him as like in real life is playing Jack Chatham, which is 
cool, I guess. But again, we we discussed our thoughts on the tr- the Mutilator two trailer, uh, and I think I, I definitely want to be pleasantly surprised by the film. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I've said this numerous times: the Mutilator is one of my favorite eighty slasher films. I feel no shame saying that. Um, there. I think, yes, there are issues with the film, but when it gets it right, boy, does it fucking get it right. The pacing is great. The film never gets boring. There is that moment, like I said, of the blind man's bluff that does drag a little bit. But for the most part, once the kills start, the film kicks into high gear. You're treated to one gore set piece after another, and they just build upon themselves. I will say I adore this film so much that I, I strongly you know, use this film as an inspiration for my film party night, my first film. And I'm not plugging my film. I'm just saying like, if you look at both films, there's a lot of similarities in the films. Like in party night, it's a group at a secluded house. They're being picked off by what ends up being the uncle of one of the the kids. Right. Um, There are dialogue moments that are very similar. Like there's a moment early on in party night where the group gets to the house and the character of Amy sees a glass of milk and has the exact same line that Pam does at the beginning of mutilator. When she's like, how long do you think it's been since they've been here? I mean, there's a lot of parallels because I love the mutilator so much. So it was my little love letter to the mutilator in in a lot of ways, but also a combination of other 80 slasher films. Um, So that's how much this film kind of, has meant to me as a slasher fan. I think it's one of the films that made me a slasher fan. So I know it has its detractors, but at the end of the day, what more can you ask for in a slasher film in terms of wanting to see carnage play out on screen? Yes. The story could be developed more. We discussed that, but you know what? I have a fucking blast with it. You know, when we do this, you know, when we sit down to watch a movie, there are some films that I think, ugh, do I have to watch it again? Like, I've got to watch it again for notes. Let's just get it over with. And there are some films that I feel, you know what, I'm excited to watch it again. I can't wait to uh, watch it with um, the intention of taking notes, you know, the intention of analyzing it further. And this is one of those films for me. I was excited to view it again. Uh, you know, as absurd as some of the aspects are, as as amateur as some of the elements of it are, some of the performances and so forth, it has a charm to it. Um, it has uh, a very, very, very impressive series of kills that for a horror movie fan, I mean, how could you not want to celebrate that? Like it is truly impressive. And it's really for the era, one of the standout offerings. Um, each one of these films has an area they struggle and have areas they succeed. And this one succeeds in the gore area in ways that most do not. So I think it definitely deserves the attention and the praise. I genuinely hope Mutilator 2 succeeds, uh, only because I think it's something that I personally want for the, the cast and crew that are returning. I want that for them because I enjoy this project. And it's the same writer, same director. So we'll see. I'm, I'm, I am excited. Like I said, the trailer not really didn't make me want to like go rush out and see the movie. I'm going to see it because I'm such a huge fan of this first one. But let me ask you a question as a, as a fan of this movie. I just want to hear what you think of this. Um, knowing what we know, what worked and what did not in, in this film. How do you feel about the idea of a mutilator remake? Uh, give it to me. I would definitely do it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think I feel like, like I said, I feel like party night was already my little tribute to the mutilator in a lot of ways. And so I would be all down for a Mutilator remake. And I think if you if Mutilator 2 is, is somewhat successful, I think you're going to see a Mutilator remake, to be honest with you. I think the areas to improve on this film are glaring. 
You know, it's very clear what improvements could have been made to that script to give it more of um, of an emotional heft, of uh, more of an impact, more connectivity between the characters, and and you know more payoff at the end, at the end of the movie. So I think if you have the right person uh, take this material and rewrite it with that mentality behind it of wanting to take that basic concept and just improve upon the story that's there. The very simple story that has a very loaded opening sequence. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Could there, you could do, you could really add a lot of depth and whatnot to the film. So I would, I would, I would be for it, but I'm, you know, in the meantime, we're getting part two, which is way more than I could have ever asked for. So 40 years after the fact, I'm excited. Again, I'm really hoping that they are right about holding back for the trailer because the trailer was less than impressive. So we shall see. All right. Well, that's the mutilator, folks. Let us know your thoughts on it as an 80s slasher film. Yes. You know, I really feel like it's a film that has influenced a lot of, you know, indie filmmakers, particularly ones that uh, delve into the slasher genre. Like I'm assuming, you know, just from his work that Damien Leone, who did Terrifier, Terrifier 2, had to have seen the mutilator has to be a fan of it. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. It's a movie that I think has a lot more maybe impact than we know. Yeah. Um, but kind of goes unsung. So I feel like this is it's time for some mutilator love. We're singing it. But yeah, we are. We're singing that, that fall Roger, break. <laughs> yeah, fall break. <laughs> so real quick, Roger, why don't you tell them what our choice is for next? Guys, week? you know, I, I really wanted to just kind of go back to our a little more um, uh, obscure and uh, unique roots, you know, cover titles that maybe don't get as much attention or love. I know some of our most celebrated reviews, some of our most listened to are the more uh, obscure titles, you know. So I really was like, you know, let's go for something that's not as expected or anticipated. Um, I'm going to select a movie that I had the joy of watching during a De Palma double feature. Um, And I had a really wonderful experience seeing this. This is probably six or seven years ago now, but I got to see this on the big screen. It left quite an impact on me. Um, and, it, you know, people are torn on this title, but I really enjoy it. It's uh, Brian De Palma's 1984 body double. And Troy, I believe you've never seen this one before, right? I have never seen Troy. it. It'll, it'll, I'm a body, body double virgin. So here we let, go. Going into let me tell you, Melanie song. Griffith, say what you want about that lispy angel voiced blonde haired dame, but uh, she did get a golden globe nomination out of this movie. And it does also feature Craig Wasson, Craig Wasson, who you may recognize uh, as Dr. Neil from Dream Warriors. He is the male lead in this. And it also has a small cameo from the beloved Barbara Crampton, whom we just covered in your next. And there's even a blink and you'll miss her moment with, uh, featuring Brink Stevens, who you've worked with. So there's a lot of fun little Easter eggs in this. I think you're really going to enjoy just how different this film is from a lot of the things we've covered recently. I hope you like it, but I, I have no idea what to anticipate. And listeners, if you haven't seen it, you got to watch it before the next review because we don't want to be spoiling shit for you. So you got to check this movie out. Body Double, 1984. Body Double. I'm excited. Sorry. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. Check out our Patreon. We got lots of great stuff up. We just recorded our top three favorite scores for our patreon mini episode which you can access for just two dollars a month so check it out i like that one a lot yeah it's fun it's gonna be a fun one uh but with that guys good night 
And next week we'll be back double with body double. Yes, we will. And it's about the porn industry. So get ready. All right. Everyone have a great night. Good night. Good night. 